Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Amen, amen. Thank you for that, Britt. Thank you, worship team. If you uh, have your Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up to Psalm 100. And today we're going to be looking at this psalm that is uh, to give thanks, or as some versions have it, a thanksgiving psalm. And before you think I'm confused about what holiday it is, I'm not. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. It is certainly we can give thanks for mothers, yes. Mothers who have given us life, mothers who did their best, mothers who have sacrificed and served and shown what it means to love, mothers who volunteered to be so even though it was not their job originally. Can we thank the Lord for mothers today, Harvest Decatur? So yes, we're looking at a psalm of thanksgiving, which is primarily about worship to God. And I'm going to tell you right out the gate uh, what I think is going to be good for us to take away from this 100th psalm and what I'm calling a promoting worship. We are to shout, serve, and sing for the Lord is God and the Lord is good. You agree with me so far, Harvest Decatur? Absolutely. All right, now to give you a little insight into the types of worship, uh, there are corporate psalms and there are private worship psalms, and to be able to tell the difference is fairly straightforward. Uh, The psalm will either begin with an imperative call to praise, that is a command to worship God, like Psalm 100 here, which makes it a corporate psalm, or it will have a proclamation of intent to praise like that of Psalm 101, just after this one, signifying it as a private psalm. However, Psalm 100 here is very short, and it's somewhat generic in nature, making it even a a little more unique among all the other corporate psalms, so much so that we can learn from it not only our individual responsibilities, but as well as what it means to corporately adore Christ. Most of us understand what it means to sing, But when I'm talking of serving, it's derived from the Levitical institution of priests that offer their service to God through their singing, through their sacrifices, through what they did at the temple. We know, according to New Testament, that we are all now made priests through Christ, and so we are to bring our worship and service to God and to shout, well, the Lord is good. And he has provided a fantastic illustration to begin our study here of Psalm 100. Last week, during the announcements, when VBS was announced, there was an eruption of praise from the kids downstairs. 
Now, I know not everybody heard it, but several of us in the back of the sanctuary were privileged to such emotive exaltation of God's goodness in that announcement. These kids were indeed making a joyful noise to the Lord. Shout, serve, sing, for the Lord is God and the Lord is good. Harvest Decatur, elevate God as God. That is such a, a profound command for every aspect of our lives, let alone a sermon on worship. But at the very least, I would suggest you write that down as our first point this morning. A promoting worship elevates God as God. So we are studying this psalm this morning, and as such, it doesn't follow a, a linear deductive reasoning, but it swirls about us in emotive imagery and metaphor. And so as we are enveloped in this tsunami of praise and adoration, let us begin our study of this 100th psalm in verse 3. If you would look with me here in verse 3 and, and read there, it begins, it says, Know that the Lord, He is God. Know that the Lord, He is God. There is no one else like Him. There is no one that has His knowledge. There is no one who has His power. There is no one who can fill the same space that He fills. My kids were having a discussion the other day, and, and they were talking about the Trinity and, and how difficult it is for them to understand that. And like any good father, I cleared up the matter with telling them that that's not even the hardest thing to understand about God. <laughs> Take the pre-incarnate Christ, for instance. I mentioned how some view the man who is in the fire, the fourth man in the fire, who was not being burned up and looked like a son of God in the account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as being the pre-existing form of Jesus. John, in his gospel, claims that the word that was with God in the beginning became human and lived among them, the word being Jesus. The eternal power that, when spoken, formed galaxies, became a man. The Lord, who is, is boundless and, and eternal and knows everything, became an infant who knew nothing. The origin of life and love wrapped himself in the hate and death our world has to offer. There is no one like him. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Before Abraham and Isaac, before you and me, the Lord is. He is the very fabric of our existence. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. From our cosmos down to the intricacies of our DNA strands, all of it remains and continues 
because God wills it to be so. In all things, it is he. It is he. This is why our psalmist so easily slips into recognition of God as creator. And he says, look again at verse 3. He says, it is he who made us, and we are his. We belong to the Lord. If your Bible is anything like mine, there's, there's a little number at the end of that line, or possibly an asterisk there, and it's indicating that there's a footnote. And my footnote states that this can be translated, and not we ourselves. Now, that's a little confusing and a, a little clunky for English, which is why most translations have it, we are his, instead because it communicates better the psalmist's meaning. However, this footnote indicates that there's a a nuance or a a flavor that would be uh, good for us and helpful for us to think on. We are his means we belong to the Lord. But the reason that we belong to the Lord is because he made us. We did not make ourselves. So in this sense, we all belong to God, saved or unsaved agnostic, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, New Age, mystic, scientific, naturalist, tribal, postmodernist, we have all been created by God and belong to him just as the mountains belong to God, just as the lakes and the rivers and the creeks belong to God, just as the squirrels and the creepy crawly things on the ground belong to God, we all belong to him. It is he who made us. The psalmist, he tells us to know this, to understand this reality and worship God accordingly. Let me ask you, Harvest Decatur, why'd you come to church today? To grow in your faith? To experience God's love and presence? To be close with with fellow believers, fellow people of God? To be faithful in your duty as a disciple of Christ? You know, I, I absolutely love the passage that Ryan preached on last week. Paul wrote, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his purposes. It is God working in us to give us the want to, and it's God working in us to give us the how to, the to do, in all of it, it is he, for it is God who works in us. But you know, he doesn't steer parked cars. So why did you come to church today? Because God wanted you to. It is he who made us. We are his. So keep praying. Keep reading your Bible. Keep coming to church Keep shouting and serving. Keep showering others with attention and care. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep feeding the poor. Keep shouting and serving and singing for the Lord is God. And we are his. In verse 3 here, there's an interesting narrowing of a perspective. We move from the eternal reality of God to his position as the creator. And then we move into an intimate Space, as the psalmist wrote, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Harvest Decatur, through the redeeming work of Christ, we are his people, his sheep. He tends us. He cares for us. He gives us what we are in need of. You are loved 
by God. Now, I'm certain many listening this morning have heard that God loves you, and you have read and heard and, and probably even memorized John 3:16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal, everlasting life. But hear these words afresh this morning. You, Harvest Decatur, are loved by God. And it is for this reason that we must participate in a promoting worship. We must promote God, the eternal God, the creator, and the God who whispers words into our souls, you are mine. A promoting worship, it elevates God as God and it recognizes God's goodness. A promoting worship recognizes God's goodness. Hear the psalmist's words in verse 5. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Shout, serve, and sing, for the Lord is God, and the Lord is good. God's steadfast love and his faithfulness was first expressed to Moses when establishing the covenant with the people of Israel. And we can read in the Exodus account, Here's what it said, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. I listened to a Bible Project podcast a while back, and on that podcast they were discussing this very passage in Exodus, and they stated that it is one of the most quoted verses within the Bible. That some portion of it is duplicated by later authors more so than any other ancient text. And as such, it would be no surprise then we find it here quoted in our psalm this morning as after hearing it, Moses worshiped. In that Bible Project podcast, John and Tim, they discuss how the seeming structure of the statement is almost off-putting to contemporary ears. Often we want to compile a list of things. We tend to put the most important first in that list, do we not? But when we have a, a good news, bad news scenario, we want the good news to be at the end because we want to be able to part and leave with, with slightly uplifted spirits. But here in this Exodus verse, it seems that the bad news is last. However, after they work through the various aspects of this passage, it become apparent that the bad news was actually good news. God's visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, as Tim explained, is conveying the idea of God's faithfulness to offer every generation the same opportunity to live in the covenantal promise or reject it. Understanding that, there's this, this back and forth flow to the verse. God is merciful and gracious on one side and slow to anger on the other side abounding in steadfast love on the one side and faithfulness on the other, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions of sin over here and over there, he will by no means clear the guilty. As the psalmist claims, God's goodness is based on his steadfast love and faithfulness to every generation to be the God he is. It feels like it's time for a story now, doesn't it? (laughs) You know, the best way to recognize God's goodness is to tell stories. Stories about who God is. Stories about what God has done. Stories about what God will do. In fact, the entire Bible can be viewed as one whole story covering those three realities. But what kind of stories can I tell of God's goodness? I woke up this morning. That's a sign of God's goodness. I get to experience the love of my family for another day. I get to see the sunshine and feel the breeze. What other stories can I tell? Food on my table? That is certainly God's goodness. You know, we don't experience famines like they used to back in the ancient times when when a lack of rain would, would ruin entire crops for years. And then when the storage would run out, they, they did not have many options. In fact, there's a story in the Bible about two women during a, a famine who were starving and they were looking at each other desperate and they made an agreement that we'll eat your son first and we'll eat my son next. That's a desperation not many of us have ever experienced. That's a pleasant thought for Mother's Day, isn't it? (laughs) We may not face famine as our economic and food systems are, are, are far more resilient than those in ancient times. Things just begin to cost more. You know, but in that increase, there are many that still struggle. Food on the table is certainly God's goodness. What other stories can I tell? Standing in front of the church as my beautiful bride walks through a door and down an aisle. You know, she might have had many regrets in these past 23 years of marriage, but God has certainly been good to me through her. (laughs) The birth of each of my children the friends that I've made over the years, the the transformation in my life as God has worked in his redeeming purposes. These are all stories that recognize and recount God's goodness. But you know what might be a better question to ask? Is what stories can you tell about God's goodness? Woke up this morning, food on the table for sure. What about a friend that has stood by your side in difficult times? A mother who watches your kids so you can have some peace. Yeah, it's okay. Jesus needed some alone time too. Can you tell stories of victory over sin? Can you share stories of how the Lord has moved in your conversation to draw another unto himself? How do the stories of God's goodness, do you share them in your home, in your work, in your relationships, Are there shouts of joy and singing of God's faithfulness? 
Do our stories of God's goodness sing? Do they carry a note of love? Do they progress a rhythm of grace? Do they resonate with longings and drawing us into the presence of God? Shout, serve, and sing, for the Lord is God and the Lord is good. When times are good, shout, serve, and sing. And when at times when it seems that God is sleeping, and I know there's some of you that have felt that, Maybe you're feeling it now. Shout, serve, and sing of God's faithfulness. For who he is, for what he's done, and for what he will do. So we've looked at who to worship in that we are to elevate God as God. We've looked at why we worship and recognizing God's goodness. And now we'll look at how to worship in that it articulates thankfulness. And that is our third point this morning. A promoting worship articulates thankfulness. Looking back at Psalm 100, we find ourselves adrift in verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Bless his name, Harvest Decatur. Bless his name. What does that mean, bless his name? It's a phrase that's replete in the Psalms to to bless his name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name. But but our cultural understanding, our our experience, yours and mine, of that word is it's limited. If you hear me say bless you, you, you probably think someone's sneezing. Or if I say bless their heart, you think I'm, I'm offering a, a patronizing and pitiful excuse for someone's ineptitude with a touch of sweetness. <laughs> but bless the Lord, it, is he sneezing? No. No, the biblical understanding of this idea of bless or blessings is, is far more robust than how we use it today. There was an understanding they had of of blessings and curses, which were words that were spoken over people to impart favor or doom. It, It would be similar to our recommendation letter for employment. For instance, if someone wrote, Jane is phenomenal. She not only is meticulous in the execution of her duties, but she's very attentive and intuitive of customers' needs. You would do well to hire her, as I would promote her myself, but the only place for her to move up into would be my job. (laughs) Words as such would not only inspire confidence in Jane, but likely would result in her being hired for the job in which she was applying. The ancients, though, the the blessing that they sought after, they had a, a far more ascription of power to those words than simply persuasion. Receiving a blessing was desired and needed. They believed the words spoken over them could change their future. But this is not the context into which we bless God either. We do not grant him success in his endeavors, for it is he who made us, and we are his. For some clarity on this passage, we can again look to the history of God's people and his revelation to them. 
In Genesis 24, we can read of Abraham's servant who was looking to find a wife for Isaac. And he came to a well and he prayed that God would bring out a woman that when he asked for a drink, she would offer it to him and also to his camels. And then that would signify this is the woman to whom he should ask if she would marry Isaac. And it happened just as he prayed. A woman showed up. He asked for a drink and she gave him water and she said, may I also draw water for your camels? And this man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who was not forsaken, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness towards my master. He blessed the Lord through worship. To bless his name is to worship him, as the psalmist has commanded us to do. But it is in how we worship that the psalmist is really keying in on, and that it is to be through thankfulness. You know what, if I'm frank with you all, our culture doesn't really understand that word well either. Even though we have an entire holiday named after it, we do not give the word the weight it is due. We gather for Thanksgiving, we eat for food, we, we probably pray, we share on social media the 10 things that we're thankful for this year, but it's all about niceties, about being polite and, and, and a good-natured person. We tell our children to say please and thank you because that's what people with good manners do. Biblically, though, we are to give thanks in all circumstances. We are to, with thanksgiving, let our requests be known to God. And how about this? When one of the primary results of the resurrection power and redemption of Christ to bring about is more thanksgiving. But strong. Take a look at what Paul wrote the church in Corinth. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The reason thanksgiving has more weight than what we tend to give it credit for is because it presses down right into the core of our sin and autonomous rebellion against the Creator. There's a reason that Paul also preaches so much about not boasting of our own salvation. And it's not just because of the legitimacy of that doctrine, as it is to be more than a verbal confession of right beliefs, but so that the doctrine might work in our hearts to fight against the sins of humanity. 
the sins of Eve and Adam, the sins that grab for power and control. And that doctrine might fight for a willing passivity. Eugene Peterson describes it this way in his book, The Contemplative Pastor, returning to the art of spiritual direction. But there are different ways of being passive. There is an indolent, inattentive passivity that approximates the existence of a slug. And there is a willed, attentive passivity that is something more like worship. Reverence is the operative word in Phobo Christu. Awed, worshipful attentiveness, ready to respond in love and adoration. We do not learn our relationship with God out of a cocksure, arrogant knowledge of exactly what God wants, which then launches us into a vigorous cleanup campaign of the world on his behalf, in the course of which we shout out orders to him, bossing him around so that he can assist us in accomplishing his will. Nor do we cower before him in a scrupulous anxiety that fears offending him, only venturing a word or an action when explicitly commanded and at all other times worrying endlessly of what we might have done to offend him. No, gospel reverence, Christ reverence, spouse reverence is a vigorous but by no means presumptuous, bold freedom full of spontaneous energy. This is the contextual atmosphere in which we find ourselves loved and loving before God. This is thanksgiving. Understanding God is God and God is good. And to express, to articulate such perspective in a tangible response to God. To shout, serve, and sing for the Lord is God and the Lord is good. How many of our prayers include thanksgiving? What percentage of the songs that we sing on the radio and hear at church contain attitudes of thanksgiving? Watch it now. How much do we articulate thankfulness to people in our lives? How thankful are you when a brother or sister in Christ challenges you in your small group to walk more intimately with Christ, to devote yourself more wholeheartedly, to self-sacrifice more frequently? Do we worship God with thankfulness? You know, I'm thankful this morning for Brandon leading us into worship. I'm thankful for Gary and Amy as, as they have faithfully served year after year on the drums and bass guitar, and I'm thankful for all of our singers that are here each week, partaking in a long-standing tradition of singing songs to the Lord. I'm thankful because not all of us are gifted as such. <laughs> but, you know, their gifts and talents, they do not excuse us in this call to worship. We cannot claim, well, I don't know how to play the harp or the lyre or the, the bass guitar because we can shout, we can serve, and we can sing. Even if our shouting and singing is done with our hands and not our mouths. In all of it, we are to come into God's presence with our worship to bless Him through thankfulness. We are to worship God because he is. 
because God is creator, because God is our shepherd. We bless God with our thankfulness because he is good, because he is love, because he is faithful. Shout, serve, and sing, for the Lord is God and the Lord is good. So we have looked at who we worship, why we worship, and how we worship. Now we will look at where we worship. A promoting worship elevates God as God, recognizes God's goodness, it articulates God's thankfulness, and it campaigns publicly. This is our final point this morning. A promoting worship campaigns publicly. There's an interesting play on words here in verse 3 and 4. It says, We are the sheep of his pasture, come into his gates, into his courts. A pasture would be considered a, a large open space, as would a court. The difference between the two would be the gate making one space outside and the other space inside. When I was leading a mowing crew, we had a contract with the Christian Village in Forsyth and Fairhavens here in Decatur, and, and both buildings have courtyards. So once we finished mowing all of the yards, we would have to take the push mowers in through the entrance of the building, down the hallway, and even through the, the dining area to then exit out into the courtyard. According to the psalmist, we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It's because we do so by coming from the pasture. But the worship, it did not begin once we got inside, just as our mowing did not begin once we got inside the courtyards. So finally, at the end of the sermon, we get to the beginning of the psalm. Take a look at verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. The entirety of God's creation, the entirety of God's people is to come into his presence with singing. Our worship does not begin when we sequester ourselves away from the world. No, our worship happens while we are still located in the world. The pasture we are the sheep of, it is this world. It is the, on the other side of the gate. It is outside the courts where we also gather to shout and serve and sing. If God is calling all people to worship him, how will they know to do it if we do not lead them? For all the earth is to sing praise to God. How can they sing if they do not know the music? And how can they know the music if they have not heard the song? And how can they hear the song if no one is singing? And how are we to sing if we never leave and carry our song with us as it is paraphrased? How beautiful are the voices of those who sing the good news. The psalmist is not arguing for a religionless faith whereby our, our personal connection with God is, is found not in the solidarity of his people, but in individual self-expression. No, he tells us to gather and to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We are to shout, serve, and sing here in the church, lifting high the name of Jesus. 
But if our faith is only religion, whereby it stays in these walls, then it is no faith at all, but simply an event. If our worship only occurs behind closed doors, then it is not worship at all, but simply an activity. Jesus said that the day is coming and is now here when people will no longer simply go to a location to worship, but will worship in spirit and truth. So since the idea of service is that which is rendered to God, with our Christian worship, a congregation is not the audience. God is the audience. This means that our worship entails far more than simply what we do here at church. Our shouts of joy in the excitement of a game is worship when there's an attitude of thankfulness and the joy knowing that good gifts come from God. Our service to employers and customers is worship when performed in a way that elevates God as the one who works in us to will and to act. And when we sing songs of God's faithfulness to all generations, we campaign publicly for all to recognize that God is the one to whom all will bow down, then we have a promoting worship. Harvest Decatur, do we have a promoting worship? Let us pray to that end. Gracious Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the spirit of all holiness. Thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for always being the God who is, that you do not shift, you do not change you are solid and trustworthy. And there is absolutely none like you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for showing us what it means to follow you. Thank you for the desire to worship thank you for the desire to love thank you for being our creator thank you for being our sustainer thank you for being our shepherd the one who cares we ask for your provision in our lives to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stir within us a promoting worship to lift high the name of Jesus in boldness, in truth, in every moment and every experience in our life, let you be the God who is. We pray this in your name and for your good purposes, Lord Jesus.